Hey, it's Martine. Today, we are airing the first episode of our two-part series, Marooned in Matamoros. It is this riveting story that takes so many twists and turns. And it comes from reporter Aralise Hernandez, as well as Post Report's editor and producer Ted Muldoon, who is taking the reins today as host. And just a warning, the story contains descriptions of a violent crime and mentions of sexual assault. So here we go. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Ted Muldoon, in for Martine Powers. Hello. Hello, hello. And you are recording. I am indeed recording. Okay. Arelis Hernandez is recording. That's going to be useful. Thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) That's Arelis Hernandez. She covers immigration and Texas for The Post. So, Arlise, today we have the first episode in a two-part series uh, that you've been working on for the last year. God, it's been a year, yes. And I've been following you along the way, recording check-ins with you, asking you questions as you go through this kind of reporting process. And what you've been doing is you've been following this woman named Nancy. She fled El Salvador with her two children and came to the United States seeking asylum. But when she got here, she found herself stuck in Mexico in this sort of migrant camp for over a year now while she's tried to plead her case. That's right. That's right. She allowed me into her life to sort of document her experience in the camp. And so you were exchanging voice memos, phone calls, videos. Yeah, pictures, intimate sort of viewpoints on her experience. It's absolutely this window into this program that's come with enormous costs for tens of thousands of asylum seekers that are still in limbo and were exposed to kidnappings, rapes, and assaults. Well, so before we get more into it, I mean, where do you feel like we should start the story? I think we start with Nancy and we tell you a little bit about her. Okay. Well, why don't you bring me back to the first time you met Nancy? In February of 2020, I visited Matamoros, Mexico, which is on the other side of the Texas border city of Brownsville there was a migrant camp that had been developing full of people who were seeking asylum, but had been forced by the Trump administration to wait in Mexico while they pled their cases. Matamoros and Brownsville are two sister cities along the international border, which is the Rio Grande River, that snakes in between them. And both cities are connected by commerce, by culture, by people and families, and physically, bridges over which people cross every day. I am currently walking on the International Bridge from Brownsville to Matamoros. What you hear is the wind. Walking across the International Bridge, you can see through the railing the glistening green of the Rio Grande. And as you continue to walk over the bridge, I put in some quarters and walk through the turnstile past Mexican security officials and you come across what is the center of Matamoros. There's a main thoroughfare and a plaza and right up this little incline an itinerant migrant encampment had developed right on the banks of the Rio Grande. As I walked into the camp for the first time, I just remember my feet 
kicking up a dust storm. This migrant camp just kept going for about a half a mile. There were hundreds of tents of different colors, of different shapes, that had earthen stoves. I could smell the different meals that were being cooked, the mesquite that was being burned that had been chopped off of trees along the river. I saw children playing in the dirt with soccer balls. I saw teenagers in this one location where they could charge their phones all sort of together, looking down at their phones. Entire families that were down by the river cleaning their clothes and dishes and using the river as a source of water. Folks speaking with all kinds of different accents that could hear the distinct Salvadoran accent, a distinct Honduran accent. I could hear Venezuelans. I could hear Cubans. And everyone seemed to have a terrible story about what had brought them to that particular moment and why they were seeking asylum. I couldn't help but feel a little overwhelmed by what I was seeing. It was sort of a sensory overload. I'd been there for about two hours. I sat down on a tree stump that had been sawed off, and it was like a seat, and didn't realize I was sitting in the middle of someone's living room, essentially in front of their tent. That's where I met this woman named Nancy, who identified herself only by this name uh, out of concern for her safety. And it's the only name we're going to use for her for the same reasons. Nancy came out of her tent and she had a bowl in her hand. And that's when I had realized, you know, by intrusion. And I asked, is it okay if I just sit down here? So what does Nancy look like? She's a beautiful copper-skinned woman with a round face, jet black hair. It was super long. She had it in a ponytail and had sort of a very serious look on her face. It was really difficult to tell what she was feeling one way or the other. But when she asked me to sit down, like she, she revealed this pretty brilliant, amazing smile that she had. I spent the morning hearing all these horrible stories from migrants who had found themselves in this camp. But there was something about Nancy's story that stood out to me and was particularly chilling. In that first conversation, the pieces that, of her story that I learned was that her husband had been murdered by local gangs. Nancy had fled El Salvador in 2019 and began her journey north with her two teenage children, Andrea and, and David. The way that Nancy tells it is that she paid someone to drive her to the Guatemalan border. And then from there, she took a series of buses. And sometimes they walked from one border to the next. She arrived in Mexico, in northern Mexico, in Reynosa, which is across the river from McAllen, Texas, in around August 2019, in the, in the summer. Nancy arrives by bus to Reynosa. 
and is at the bus station when she and her two children are kidnapped by armed men wearing black balaclavas. And they're stuffed into another vehicle along with about, you know, two dozen other migrants or travelers and taken to some unknown location. But what she remembers is that it was a house and it was abandoned. And they were being yelled at and screamed at by these kidnappers. The kidnappers wanted phone numbers from them of relatives that had been helping them finance their journeys. And in Nancy's cases, was relatives in California to ask for ransom to release them. Nancy felt as though she had no choice, handed over the phone number to family members in California. There's a recording of Nancy calling her family, having already fallen into the hands of her kidnappers. And you can hear the stress in her voice. She's whispering and in a low voice, speaking very quickly, giving instructions to her family, basically telling them we have fallen into the hands of the Zetas, which is a dangerous cartel in northern Mexico. How did you get this recording? Nancy's family in the U.S. had actually saved these handful of recordings that they got from Nancy through WhatsApp. They're basically audio memos that the kidnappers made Nancy send when she was in their custody. So besides this one, I mean, what other kind of recordings are there? We also have recordings of one of the kidnappers. The kidnapper is asking Nancy's family for 250 for each person. So in this case, 250 for Nancy and David and Andrea. The threat is that he's going to kill Nancy and the children. Eso es el número de cuenta. Eso es el número de cuenta. El banco es Bancomer. It's incredibly jarring to hear Nancy in those hushed tones, obviously terrified, juxtaposed against, you know, this sort of nonchalance of the kidnapper as he's giving these instructions. You know, he's very business. This is the account. This is the bank. This is the name of the account. Make sure you do it. It still sounds menacing, but it is it is a transaction. And in dealing in human lives, it's incredible to hear those two things one next to the other. Un momento muy duro de angustia, donde uno no sabe si va a volver a ver con vida a sus hijos o qué le van a hacer a sus hijos. As she's telling me this story, Nancy, in the camp, she's convinced that at this point they were going to die. She wasn't sure what kind of response the relatives were going to give. Keep in mind that, you know, a lot of the relatives of migrants who were were seeking asylum at that time, we're not talking about rich people. We're talking about working 
immigrants in the United States that were having to shell out hundreds and thousands of dollars in these kidnapping ransom requests that were coming from the cartels. What Nancy recalls is that she was held for several days. She's not clear exactly how many days she was there, but she does remember getting reshuffled into a vehicle with these people, driven around, and all of a sudden the vehicle stopped. She was taken off of the vehicle with her two kids, and they were all lined up. She said she thought that they were just going to shoot and kill them right at that moment. And instead, they let him go. Cuando nos fueron a dejar, nos dejaron en un lugar cerca del río porque caminamos no mucho, caminamos para el río. And in that moment, she realizes that she's very, very close to the river, to the border, and makes the decision that she can no longer, you know, wait that she is going to pay someone to take her across in the raft the next morning. Nancy, at that point, is loaded up to an inflatable raft. Is paddled across. And as she gets to the other side of the river from Reynosa, she's intercepted by Border Patrol. Nancy and her children spent several days in U.S. custody after crossing the river, thinking that they would be able to move on to the next step of their journey to California. But then, to her surprise, they are taken to Brownsville in order to walk back across the bridge into Mexico and into Matamoros. They were given a slip of paper with a court date for the following November 2019. Nancy now found herself in an unfamiliar city, and the only recourse she had at that moment was to look toward the burgeoning migrant camp on the river levee as a potential shelter. All these months later... This is where I found Nancy, in this camp. In that first conversation, she shared with me the broad sweeps of her life. But it was clear to me that Nancy was being extremely cautious about the information that she was giving me and that she wasn't telling me the whole story. So before I left that day, I got her phone number and I gave her mine. I wanted to stay in touch with Nancy because I really wanted to understand what was happening in the camp and wanted to see this experience through her eyes. For Nancy, I think she wanted to stay in touch, her and the other migrants, because they didn't want to be forgotten, first of all. And secondly, because Nancy wanted information. There was a dearth of good factual information that was available to people in the camp. It's not like they got official communications from the U.S. government about much outside of their court dates. 
And people, including Nancy and other migrants, really wanted to unpack and understand what was happening in policy, any changes in politics that were happening in the U.S. to try to figure out how that was going to affect their lives. So she really did see me as a conduit to the outside world. And over the course of the year, we developed a relationship. Buenas noches, Areli. Buenas tardes, Areli. Buenos días, Areli. ¿Cómo está? Sí, está bien. And traded phone calls and audio memos and text messages, videos and and photos of her life in the camp. And slowly, the full portrait of her life started coming into view. If we want to back up for a second, I think it's important to see and explore the reasons why Nancy and so many other migrants found themselves in this situation in the first place. In 2019, when Nancy first crossed the border, she was part of this massive influx of migrants, particularly from south of the border, south of Mexico, into the United States. Many of the migrants there, like Nancy, were deliberately surrendering to Border Patrol and asking for asylum. They weren't trying to slip into the country illegally. This is how asylum works. Asylum is a form of protection that the United States and many other countries around the world grant to people from other countries who are seeking refuge, right, who are wanting to be protected from something that is persecuting them in their home countries. And this is an application process. A judge ultimately decides, you know, the merits of your particular case and whether it falls within the law. And as it had worked in the past and under past administrations, those individuals got to stay in the United States while their cases were being adjudicated. For Nancy and the thousands of other migrants that were arriving at the U.S. southern border, from Central America in particular, they were asking for asylum based on the violence in their home countries, that they had been persecuted by the gangs and the criminal activity taking place in their home countries, and that their governments weren't doing anything to protect them. But the reality is that many of the people like Nancy who do arrive at the border, very few of them actually win asylum. As of 2020, which is the year where we have the most recent data, less than one in five Salvadorans seeking asylum in the United States were granted asylum. It's very difficult. And of course, uh, asylum. Asylum is a ridiculous situation. People come in, they read a line from a lawyer that a lawyer hands them out online. Under the assumption that most of these petitions for asylum were illegitimate, it's a big con job. That's what it is. And In December of 2018, just months before Nancy and her two children arrived at the border, the Trump administration had started piloting a program called MPP. Effective immediately, the United States will begin the process of invoking... Sex Under MPP, which stands for Migrant Protection Protocols, asylum seekers were forced back to Mexico for the duration of their immigration proceedings to wait on court dates so that they could present their cases in courts that were set up along the U.S.-Mexico border. They will have to wait for approval to come into the United States. 
almost 70,000 migrants, including small children and older individuals, were waiting for these court dates. The government is struggling to handle a backlog of asylum cases, a process that can take years. Primarily, as I said, from Central America, but also Venezuela, Cuba, Haiti. And these folks, a lot of them were turned back into Mexico, mostly the Spanish-speaking people, in an agreement that the Trump administration had made with Mexico. Meanwhile, it's not clear how Mexico plans to deal with the asylum seekers while they wait for a judge to decide their fate. As a result, you had tens of thousands of migrants who were waiting for these court dates and living in tents for months and months. What do we know about why the Trump administration was making this drastic change in policy? Judging by his own words, Trump thought that asking for asylum was just way too easy. And so the administration created and added more roadblocks to the process to make it much more challenging. The point was to discourage and deter people from coming. Our nation has a proud history of affording protection to those fleeting government persecutions. Unfortunately, legitimate asylum seekers are being displaced by those lodging frivolous claims. These are frivolous claims to gain admission into our country. So after Nancy is released back into Mexico and she winds up in this camp along with thousands of other people like her trying to seek asylum, I mean, how is she feeling at this point? Nancy is shaken. She doesn't understand really what has happened or what the next steps are going to be. She really believed that surrendering to Border Patrol would put her into a process that would reunite her with her relatives in California where she could live to fight another day in her immigration proceeding. That did not happen. She steps into Matamoros and is basically told, good luck until your next court hearing. She doesn't, at this point, have anything. She doesn't have money. And in the process of this, she also didn't have shoelaces in her shoe, is another thing that cartels would use to identify folks who had been thrown back by, by Border Patrol, is that they didn't have shoelaces in their shoes. They take those in Border Patrol stations. So at this point, she's got to figure this out. And the only sort of glimmer of hope that she has is this piece of paper, this notice to appear in court that gives her some semblance of hope that she still will be able to go through some kind of process for asylum. So it's 2019 and Nancy has this slip of paper with a November court date on it. Does she have a sense of, like, how long after that date she might be stuck in the camp? Or does she think that that date is it? Nancy, like many other people I spoke to who lived in this migrant camp, thought this was temporary. A matter of months, and then they would be in the United States and they would be reunited with their families. What they didn't expect was that this process was prolonged far beyond what they ever could have imagined. As Nancy's trying to get a hold of all the dynamics in this camp, what's it like when she first gets there? Like, who's in charge and where does she get stuff? 
The evolution of the migrant camp is complicated. They were being ordered back into Mexico by the U.S. government. But the Mexican government wasn't exactly thrilled. Entonces, ¿la comida eh, de dónde viene del gobierno? No, como no nos quieren a nosotros. Technically, Mexican immigration officials were responsible for making sure that this camp didn't interfere with regular Mexican life and commerce in this border city. They worked with aid groups to install things like porta potties and eventually showers and, and wash basins and these other types of amenities. So when she first gets to this camp, Nancy has to figure out what the social structure is, right? Each community has their like community leader, like the, the Salvadoran migrants have their leaders, the Hondurans have their leaders and figure out how things work in the camp. Like, how do I get shoes? Where is the food being donated on a daily basis? But what was extremely curious about the development of this camp was the fact that it was never declared a refugee camp. It was never a situation where someone like the UN was allowed to come in and sort of organizing this camp. It was really haphazard. Why was it never designated a refugee camp? That is an excellent question. I think, number one, from an optics standpoint, it looked terrible, both for Mexico and the United States, to have a refugee camp on their borders. Secondly, from a legal perspective, a refugee is a really specific kind of individual that has a specific definition of someone who's fleeing active war or conflict in their countries. It wasn't clear to a lot of people, and, and particularly the agency responsible for making these designations, the United Nations, that these migrants were, in fact, refugees. From an advocacy perspective, this should have happened. And if you talk to advocates like Human Rights Watch, pro-immigration folks, they'll tell you these people are refugees. There's debate, though, as to whether they fit that international definition and whether their plight would trigger the kind of international response that normally would be initiated if this was, you know, war-torn Syria or uh, or Somalia in the 1990s. So at the end of the day, that movement was never made. And these folks were basically living on their own with very little supervision, with very little protection from anyone. So November comes around, which is the date that Nancy was given after being released back into Mexico. What happens then? November comes around and Nancy goes to court. These are these temporary courtrooms that are sort of developed very quickly and at millions of dollars at cost right along the border. She shows up and that first hearing is really just her submitting paperwork and filling papers out. She really didn't get a chance to see a judge or to talk to anyone at length about her particular case and then is given another date for March 2nd of 2020, the next year. I mean, that's another four months from what she had first thought would be her hearing. Right. Nancy, at this point, has to make a new calculation. Okay, 
I am going to be in this camp without many resources for a longer period of time. What do I need to do to survive? What do I need to do to protect my children? This is right around when you first met Nancy in February of 2020. So basically, between her first November court date in 2019 and this new one in March of 2020. After meeting Nancy, how long did it take you to start learning the details of what brought Nancy to the camp in the first place? It took me over a year to piece this all together. But this is the story that emerged. Per her telling, Nancy's life was never easy. She started working when she was 10 years old. She was a child who was sent back and forth between different households and didn't really grow up with a stable family. As an adult, she met her husband and since that point had worked a number of different jobs. She did alterations on clothing from her home. She sold pupusas in the street and other kinds of merchandise in El Salvador. Nancy's troubles began in 2010. Her husband was a bus driver, and at the time, a lot of the criminal organizations, MS-13, the 18th Street Gang, were actively extorting bus drivers. In 2010, January, he was murdered. And his body was laid out in the street as he went to go pick up some parts that he needed for his bus. It's something that Nancy still struggles to talk about. But in the search for justice and having local authorities prosecute that case, it took several years and insistence by her and her husband's family to get law enforcement to investigate and to arrest someone and charge them with her husband's murder. That happened in 2018. They convicted an individual tied to some of these criminal organizations, and he was sentenced to 25 years in prison. I was able to independently verify all this with the district attorney's office in El Salvador through newspaper accounts, as well as some court documents that were translated to English. Nancy's and her husband's family search for justice opened up a new set of problems. The criminal organizations were upset that one of their own had been charged with this crime and started persecuting Nancy and her two children. Her daughter, according to her telling, was nearly kidnapped from school. Her son was pestered by gang members on his way back and forth from school. 
la tienda a comprar, no podían salir a ninguna parte, ellos no podían ir a ningún lado, si no salían, pasaban en la casa encerrados toda la vida, todo el tiempo, porque ellos solos no podían salir. O sea, It got to the point where, you know, at all hours, Nancy was inside her house with her two kids, and, you know, the gang members would come terrorize them, knock on the door and, and leave notes threatening to kill them. Yo no tenía, ellos no tenían una libertad. Was there any way that she could seek protection away from these gangs at the time? Pues, no podía esperar que alguien más de mi familia perdiera la vida. Nancy felt as though she didn't really have any other options not to go to the police, not to the state government. Esperando que la policía, que las autoridades hicieran algo y al final, pues, uno siempre sale perdiendo. I mean, her experience of running through and trying to get justice for her husband's murder was enough of an experience to tell her that she wasn't safe. And she understood that gang members had pretty much overrun every part of her neighborhood. So Nancy, feeling as though she had no other recourse because most of her husband's family is in the United States and she herself doesn't have any family that she relies on that she can count on remaining in El Salvador. Dejar todo. In the spring of 2019, Nancy made a decision to migrate north to the U.S.-Mexico border and ask for asylum in the United States. The day that she left, El Salvador, she hopped in a car with her two kids carrying, you know, book bags full of papers for her case and, you know, just the most essential things. They left and they never looked back. The day after Nancy left her house, her neighbors reported back to her that the gang members arrived that same morning looking for her and her children. Why do you think it took Nancy so long to tell you the details of her story? Like, what did she have to be worried about in the camp? Well, Nancy was not safe. So in this tape, Nancy says that she's about to tell me something confidential. I went back and asked her permission to use this piece of tape now because it's indicative of the fear that surrounded her entire existence in this camp. Whenever Nancy and I sort of settled on a time and date to speak, she'd actually separate herself from the camp and go into places where she was sure no one would overhear her because she was going to talk to me about the crime in the camp, the criminal organizations, the cartels that were there, terrorizing folks who lived there. Very few people cross the river from Mexico into the United States without first getting permission and consent and paying off the cartels. If you don't, you run the risk of being killed, kidnapped, or 
all sorts of things can happen to you. And so because the cartels control that leg of the migration, they see the camp as an opportunity to exploit, to infiltrate, to keep tabs on whatever business opportunities would present themselves with the migrants. With no security at the camp, with lots of listening ears all around her, Nancy was constantly afraid and keeping an eye out. For men who would come into these tents, sometimes rape women and children. And though this is Nancy's account, it's also supported by well-documented reports from groups like Human Rights Watch. There were journalists who recorded dozens of tales. This was no secret. She kept an eye out for making sure her kids did not befriend anyone who had any kind of sympathies or might have at some point worked with criminal organizations, you know, for more resources or to gain some kind of monetary advantage, you know, which happens. There are economies that are created and and markets that are created wherever there are people and there is movement and there is money. Do we have a sense of how these threats of violence day to day were impacting Nancy and her children? Oh, they were in a constant state of stress and anxiety. They're constantly on alert. And if you talk to, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists about this kind of thing, it's that you can never sort of relax. You're, you're always tense, waiting and, and keeping eye on what's going on around you. And that has a severe impact on someone's mental health, on their emotional health, and not to mention their physical health. Okay. You could absolutely hear the tension in Nancy's voice and the fear in her voice whenever she talked about what was going on around her. David was in a scuffle with a couple of the migrant boys and was struck in the head with a stick that he had to get stitches for. She herself, after sleeping on the ground for months and months and months, her shoulder became dislocated for an extended amount of time where she couldn't use it. The phrase that she used constantly throughout our conversations was, it is so difficult to live here. I can't even explain it to you. It is, it's just life here is difficult. On March 2nd, Nancy is 
back at the International Bridge to present herself for her the next step in what she thinks is, is her asylum process. She goes to court and the prosecutor, or in this case, the federal government's attorney, doesn't show up and is sent back across the bridge, having accomplished nothing that particular day, given another court date for the following May. The, the prosecutor just doesn't show up. Yeah, that's what Nancy says. She said that the attorney representing the federal government simply didn't appear in court. And what she didn't know is that our nation's top health care officials are extremely concerned about the grave public health consequences of mass uncontrolled cross-border movement. This was the point at which the United States was starting to grapple with the realities of the pandemic. To confront these public health degrees, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has decided to exercise its authority under the Title 42 of the U.S. Code to give customers a In late March of 2020, after Nancy had spent seven months in the camp, the Trump administration closes the border to asylum seekers, refugees, and migrants through a little-known provision of U.S. health law called Title 42. Nancy's hope of continuing a process of asylum are dashed. She doesn't know what is going to happen next. What was Nancy told about where she stands, like where her case stands? Well, she and the other migrants were basically told nothing about what was going on. Nancy was on her own. She didn't really have a lawyer, and there wasn't official word. Now, there were aid groups and, and folks from Catholic Charities who came in and, and did some you know presentations from time to time. But in that vacuum of information, all kinds of rumors and misinformation were spreading throughout the camp. I mean, there were rumors, for instance, that the, that the pandemic was made up, that this was just an excuse to keep them in Mexico and to stop their asylum processes. I remember talking to another individual from the camp who basically told me this is the plan the whole time. MPP was a farce that was created to give migrants and asylum seekers some hope that they would get due process and that the pandemic made it clear that the United States was never going to give them the actual chance to go through a, a legal process. Nancy, however, was still hopeful because for her, there was no going back. And she didn't know what she was going to do. She didn't know, you know, what her next step was. And ultimately, time made that decision for her. She stayed put with that hope that the courts would open up again. Yo le digo, estoy en este camino y vamos para adelante, Arely. No importa, no importa. Yo sé que esto ya va a terminar y no importa el dolor que es, aunque ya no aguantemos, pero yo sé que Dios no le pone carga. Did Nancy talk about how she found the strength to navigate this situation? I mean, it's incredibly trying. You know, she's a woman of deep, deep faith in God. Dios es el que me ha dado la fuerza, me ha dado la fortaleza para seguir de pie todavía. Y no fuera por Dios. 
But when she talks about how she's able to live through all the indignities of, of life in the camp, she talks about her children and how this is all about them. That if it was just her, she probably would not have survived. She actively, you know, whenever she was feeling down or didn't think she could move forward anymore, she actively hid that from her children. She would say, Si yo me derrumbo, if I'm defeated, then my children are defeated. You know, listening back to these conversations between you and Nancy, I think it's really clear how important Nancy's children are for her. And I think it's interesting that we actually don't hear from them that often, that you don't have the opportunity to speak with Andrea and David. Well, Nancy kept her children really just separate from our conversations. She never put them on the phone or offered to put them on the phone I knew very little about the kids, about their lives or aspirations or their experiences. I did manage to slowly, you know, learn more about them later. But I think that's how she wanted it, right? This whole journey was about protecting her children. And she certainly wasn't going to compromise that with me. Let's flash forward to July of 2020. That July, Hurricane Hannah swept through the region in South Texas and northern Mexico. At that point, Nancy had been in the Matamoros camp for 11 months. And that hurricane really just underscored how uncomfortable the camp was. In this video that she sent me, there was water running everywhere, mud. Folks were digging out little like canals to divert the water away from the camp and towards the river. And really there was no escape from the wind and the rain except to be cloistered inside of these tents, not knowing, you know, if that wind was going to shred the sidings of what is essentially your house. July 26th, as this hurricane is descending on the camp, we're also in the heat of the presidential campaign in the United States. What was the discussion in the camp about this campaign and like what kind of hopes hinged on it for them? The asylum seekers in the migrant camp paid attention to every single piece of news that came out of the United States and Mexico that had anything to do with their particular situation. Every up and down of the debates, every policy proposal, every change in the rules. And they were constantly being fed, of course, information from the aid workers who came in and the attorneys who came in to debrief them on what was going on. For Nancy in particular, you know, she kept vigilance on the news, but 
for her, her reality was sort of divorced from the politics of, of the United States in that she knew that the Democratic presidential candidate, Joe Biden, in this instant, was someone who was proposing to do things differently for migrants. He was proposing what he called an orderly and humanitarian alternative to what the Trump administration had implemented. But at this point, after so many months in this camp, Nancy wasn't ready to trust anyone. Was You know, she, politicians like to talk, she would say. Politicians make a lot of promises. And ultimately, that there's no reason to hope in that until something actually happens. And that was her way of girding herself from any further disappointments. This is an ABC News election update. Now reporting chief anchor George Stephanopoulos. Good morning. We have breaking news results from the state of Pennsylvania. Those results are in right now. And based on what we are seeing there, we can say that Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. is on track to win the state of Pennsylvania, become the 46th president of the United States. When it was announced that Joe Biden had indeed won the election, there was celebration in the camp. There was glee and there were hugs and, and there was a sense of victory that there was light at the end of the tunnel is, what, is something I heard consistently from asylum seekers. For Nancy... Again, because she had been disappointed so many times throughout this process, it was more of, this seems good, but let's wait and see. Hasta ahorita lo que sabemos es de que, pues, de lo que le ha dicho, ¿verdad?, que no lo va a dejar aquí, en el abandono, que, pues, esperamos que, pues, lo que él prometió, pues, lo cumpla, ¿verdad?, On December 25th, Nancy sent me a video of their Christmas celebration. It was a small gathering of her and this Honduran family that they had befriended. In it, you see David sort of hunched over a plate of food and, you know, just a sense of joy permeating that particular moment. And yet, by the time I received this video in December of 2020, she had spent 16 months in the camp. It was the second Christmas that she had celebrated in the camp with her family. It was another reminder of just how long they had been there. She said to me that, you know, birthdays weren't really celebrations. They were just a reminder, again, that they were growing old in this place that they never intended to be in the first place, that they were stuck and that they had no idea when they would be free. On part two of our series. Just as Nancy reaches a breaking point, everything changes.
To find photos and videos of Nancy's journey from El Salvador and life in the camp, go to wapo.st slash nancy. Part two of this series is available now, so go check your feed. <laughs>